everybody welcome to another edition of legends and trailblazers tonight we have a legend drew heifetz i'm very excited to have him of course he's got his own podcast and his own everything the man's really doing it been doing it for a while so i'm excited to have him and uh, as soon as I see him, we'll get going. I just want to pin something real quick. How you guys doing today? Hope everybody's good. Juiced. I'm pumped. There he is, Drew. What's up, my dude? Oh, man. I'm, I'm hitting you from inside my car, man. I literally just came from a pick 10 minutes ago. I kind of saw that. It looked pretty cool. It looked like some older rock tees, eh? Yeah, some older rock tees, and I didn't even get to the to the other stuff. There's like some '90s stuff. It's pretty cool. Nice, nice. <sighs> yeah. So, so I'm glad I was able to get with you, even though I'm in the car. But hey, it's whatever, right? So anyway, hey man, yeah. Let's get let's get right into it, bro. So your um your your Instagram is Drew Highfits. What's your name? What's your actual name? My name is for everybody my, out there. My name is Andrew Heifetz. Uh, I don't know why. My parents actually named me Drew when I was born. Then for some reason they switched me to Andrew. But then in school, everyone called me Drew, so I just became Drew. Okay. Yeah. See that? That's that's a gem right there. I didn't even know that at all. Yeah. yeah it went. It went full circle. Man, I got to shave. Look at this grizzly. Well, you got the real grizzly beard, but. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> I got it. Okay, you got it. Man, you know, yeah. you know what it is? You know what it is, bro? It's like, I got the grizzly, and I got the fucking, I don't even know what you call this shit right here, bro, but it's like, it's my look now. So, Afro I gotta give it, man. yeah, I, I gotta give it another six months before I can even trim it. You know what I mean? Because people know me with this look. You gotta live into that shit. That's it's a namesake, dude. Yes, indeed, indeed, man. So let's get into it, bro. Where where were you born? Where are you from? Uh, from Toronto, uh, big city of Toronto. But I I moved away when I was four. My parents moved us to a small town, uh, which is like an hour away, called Niagara. Well, everyone's heard of Niagara Falls. I grew up near Niagara Falls. Okay. Okay. My dad, I mean, I've, I've talked about this a lot, but my dad's American, and we were born in Canada, but my dad came to Canada in the, set, in the early 70s, I think, and met my mom and basically stayed. He wasn't really, you know, this is after, like, the Vietnam draft and stuff, but he just wanted to come up, and I think in those days it was so chill. You could literally just come up and work, and no one gave a shit. It was, like, super easy to swap over countries, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh... The reason we moved to Niagara was because it was basically right on the border from Buffalo. So my dad's warehouse was always in Buffalo, and it was super close for him to drive over. So he literally lived in Canada but would drive over every day to work. Man, that's awesome. That's awesome. So back then, what were you into, like, back then, like, as far as, like, uh, like, like uh, cartoons, movies, maybe skating, stuff like that. What were you into as a, as a um, young man? Yeah, like, I grew up skating. Jesse, my brother, skated. We were always just, like, skate rats, man. My dad bought us our first skates 
I think it was like 87. He went to a trade show. See, my dad, he was, he was always in this vintage game. So he would go to these trade shows and it was like the, the surf expo or something in Cali, 1987. And he came back with two, they were like the minion boards, like the cheap brand boards, you know, like the stuff you could buy at like, I don't know, back then, maybe Walmart. I don't even know where you get these cheap boards back then, big, but it wasn't like, skate yeah. yeah, it wasn't like skate shop shit. Right. But they were sick. They were like bright pink with like snakes and dragons and super cool boards. And that's basically what got us into it. And uh, yeah, like my whole childhood was skating, man, you know, always into skating straight skate rat but like as far as cartoons and shit um you know this is the 80s so like we were watching like well i guess ninja turtles was like later 80s early 90s um you know like even like early stuff like he-man you know right like real og shit and you know when it comes to like mo like movies like all hands down favorite was um back to the future Back to the Future is the jam. Which one, though? <laughs> um, or just all of them combined? I mean, I had the trilogy on VHS. My parents bought it. I think mm -hmm. th they're all jams, but, like, number two for sure. Um, Indiana Jones, too. I fucked with Indiana Jones hard. That's what's up, man. That's what's up. So, like... Were there any skate shops around when you were, say, eight, nine, ten years old? Where you were you from? Where you grew up? It's a good question, man. There was only one. It was called Sud Skates, and it was in the next town because my town was small. My town was like fifteen thousand people. Like we're talking small town. And they were called Sud Skates. They had a half pipe out the back in their first location. Then they moved and they built an indoor skate park, and that's basically where we learned to skate because they. You know, our parents would drop us off there for the day. You know, it's like a 20-minute drive, 25-minute drive to the skate park in the next town. It's in the city. They'd drop us off with, like, five bucks for lunch. We'd, we'd go. We'd, we'd skate out and get pizza for lunch, and we'd spend, like, the whole day at the skate park. Yeah. Um, it was run by this guy, Joe Wing, and he's, like, a super OG in Canadian skate history because he – I don't know what brands, but he was instrumental in, like, bringing a lot of those early brands to Canada, and he became a rep for a lot of the brands because we're talking the 80s here, and a lot of that shit you couldn't find anywhere. It was only core skate shops. Like, this is before, like, Zoomies was around, before any of those, like, big boxes were around. Um, and he was also, like, into, like – hot rods and shit so he would like rip around in these sick hot rods he was kind of a legend in our uh well we're on legends and trailblazers so shout out joe Wayne. He's, he's he's a legend <laughs> yeah thank you for saying that by the way i you know i uh i want that to get into people's head man you got to get on legends and trailblazers um yeah so what were you doing um when you first started skating your first year or two were you street skating were you on ramps what were you what were you doing everything well, the only thing we could skate for ramps was that park. So it was all street, you know, we were just skating outside, skating the curb out front of the house. Um, you know, later on we built a half pipe. My dad helped us build a half pipe in our driveway. So we skated that a lot. Um, but it was just street. We just rip around, you know, wax up curbs, um, skate like curb cut little launch ramps. You know, it was, 
you know, we, we took the opportunity whenever we could to skate a good park, but it literally, like I said, there was only that one until way later into the nineties, man. And right. then, you know, East coast is far behind the West coast. Like skating began in Cal. You're in Cali, right? Where are you, where are you at? Well, yeah, I, um, I grew up, well, once I was, I grew up in New York, but once I turned nine, I went to Southern California, San Diego. So I know all about the skate scene and the yeah. BMX scene. So San Diego is like right there in the heart of it for the beginning of it all, right? Yep. And, uh, you know, the West Coast in general, even West Coast Canada, it's it's a better climate, right? They didn't get as harsh winters, so like you could skate longer. Even, you know, up in like the Pacific Northwest, you could skate longer in, in the year. And uh, so like Vancouver always was like the holy land for Canada for many reasons. For skating, for one thing, because you could skate longer throughout the year. And there was parks like Vancouver had cement bowls and stuff back in the 80s they had the one of the first i think one of the first parks that still stands in north america is in vancouver called um the china bowls and it's just like this really curvy kind of flowy double bowl setup i know there was there was parks in cali before that but all the parks in cali the early ones are all torn down now like they're all gone right and uh but it was all vancouver was also the holy land for canadian youth because it was the first place where like weed was sort of legal and it wasn't actually legal but they had cafes and they had you know everyone knows like bc bud like the the weed from like north northern cali pacific northwest british columbia is like the bomb right especially when you grow up on the east coast because whenever you got good weed it all came from out west Right. And so moving out West was like a, you know, a, it was always like this thing growing up, like, oh man, the West is the best. You can skate all year. They got all these skate parks. They got the best weed. You can like go into these cafes and smoke a joint. So. So yeah. when did you, um, so you skate, but you also snowboard. When did you start uh, snowboarding or, or did you start skiing first and then you got into snowboarding or? Yeah, we skied. We skied for years. Um, you know, like freestyle moguls and like we learned to ski pretty well back in the day. And, but it, I don't know, once snowboarding took over, Jesse started snowboarding before me, probably like one year before me. And I think um, probably like 1990-ish. Oh, no, it would have been like 91, 92. He started and I started just after. And this was so early in snowboarding that a lot of the resorts that we would go to wouldn't allow it. Jesse's first year at this resort called uh, Hollymon in upstate New York, where we would ski, he literally had to walk up the hill because the lifts wouldn't let him on the chair. So, like, that's how early it was. And then eventually they, they opened it up to snowboarders. Um, I tried it. And my first day snowboarding was shit, man. I hated it. I like went up the lift started snowboarding down eating shit all over the place just basically gave up had a snowmobile one of the ski patrol guys on a snowmobile like just take me to the bottom i'm like i'm done like get me out of here and then i guess it was a few weeks later when I, I picked it up again and it was like yeah i never went back to skiing it was just a jam you know it was way more like skating in, in those early days we used to jib a lot and like try to mimic the skate tricks as much as you could you know because it wasn't, there was no jump, big, real, real big jumps at resorts or anything like that to like nothing like it is now. So it was more just kind of being little dirt bags and 
fucking around and mimicking skating, you know? Right. So like, so like in school, like middle school, high school, were you like straight skater clothes only or what, what kind of, what kind of clothes were you rocking back then, man? Yeah, it was mostly skater shit. I, I was like kind of like the t-shirt and khakis kind of skater vibes, you know? Um, and like Dickies style sort of workwear stuff was big because my dad was invented. So we used to like get workwear from my dad. I remember having like old gas station jackets, probably like 60s gas station jackets back then in the in the 90s. Work shirts and uh but definitely like lots of skate clothes like i used to order out of the magazines you'd get those ccs catalogs and they'd have a page right. mag that would have tees and you'd just be looking at the graphics like and then i think i think you actually had to like mail in an envelope with your money in it and then eventually just hope to get the shit like later on <laughs> like cash buddy not a not a buddy order no, just cash money in the fucking envelope, and you'd like you'd like put a bunch of paper so that like the postman wouldn't see the cash in there and like steal your shit. Um, but yeah, it was literally sending cash in the mail in those early mail order days, man. Man. And there's a lot of shirts that I had that bring back good memories that I've like tried to reacquire. Some I have been able to, and some like I'm still on the search for. Man, that's what's up. So, what was your favorite brand back then? For skate decks, I was really into real. Um, I like had a moment with real skateboards, and then I kind of got into like uh, Toy Machine, pretty big, and Creature. Mm -hmm. I was into Creature, like kind of. This is kind of like later, like mid '90s, I guess. Uh, my first skateboard ever was a um, Powell Steve Sayaz is the guy's name. I actually have that deck. It's super rad. I have the T and sweat from that uh, from that graphic too, and it's like. He was like um, First Nations American dude. So it's really cool Dreamcatcher graphic. And it, I had a red version, and the whole back is like this really sick Dreamcatcher 1988 Powell. Man. That was what I had after those like crazy pink Dominions my dad got us. That's what's up. So you, you touched on uh, your dad uh, being in the vintage business. Um, and you're such a, a good salesman. When did you start actually hustling? When did you start reselling or, you know, just working or whatever? When did that start? For well, you? okay. I mean, I never had aspirations early on to be like, get in this game. My, my dad's a funny dude. I don't know if you've listened to any of this shit. Your dad's the fuck. Hold on. Shout out to your father. Your father is the best. You and him together on a podcast. It's better than anything. It's better than Joe Rogan. It's better than fucking anything. I don't care if you guys talk about farts all day. You two guys together are fucking amazing. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, for sure. Yo, thanks, Trem Gods or Trem Goods for saying that. Um, but yeah, so totally. So he, I need to get him on. I'm getting him on more fucking podcasts. Totally. It's been weird with COVID because like the vibe when he's on Zoom or something was not right. But um, I, I get to see him now, so it's dope. We've like, now that it's kind of mellowed out, we get to hang out. Um, but okay. So yeah, it was never our aspirations. And he would always be like, you guys gotta be doctors or lawyers. Like, don't do this bullshit. This is like, don't follow in my footsteps. You know, this is whack. Kind of right. like, it's just like busting our balls bullshit. Right. Right. Um, and you know, he was doing it our whole lives. He was doing this our whole lives. And you know, he, 
one thing about my dad is that he uh, he had amazing businesses. He did really well. He was pioneer in like a lot of the early vintage stuff. A lot of the early, um, you know, he brought in clothing from Europe. He brought in. He did a lot of military surplus, so he'd buy out from like military bases and like overstock from like, um, you know, they they do like these crazy military auctions and and he was always dealing on like a very high level. So his warehouse in Buffalo, New York. Actually, I think it was Niagara Falls. He had a few different places. He had a store in on, in Buffalo on um, Elmwood Ave, which is kind of like a hip street in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. I think actually now there's a couple other vintage stores on Elmwood, but for like the longest time, there was nothing. Buffalo's kind of a hard town. Like it's a pretty hard city. Um, anyway, he had a warehouse in a World War II like airport hangar building. After the war, this building just got like condemned and they never used it for shit. And it was like sitting on this property at a military airport that never got used either. either. So it was just like surrounded by like empty runways and stuff. You know what I mean? Right. But this building went about, from what I heard stories, like 20 levels into the ground. Wow. Because it was like some secret military bunker shit, right? Right. So his warehouse is in this building and we used to get to like, we not, like they had all the levels condemned and you couldn't go down, right? But we used to fuck around in this building and it was this crazy building. You could like drive around in golf carts in it. And my dad had his warehouse there. He had like a section of it. He didn't have, didn't have the whole thing. But my first real experience working with him, I think was there. And at that time, he was just wholesaling huge quantities of secondhand clothes. I'm talking sick stuff. When you look back, when I look back at what he had there, at that mm-hmm. time, the value is so crazy in today's market or even like markets years later. But we, he would just be like, we need to ship these thousand tees, like fold them up, box them up. Let's go. Like, let's get it out. Order's going out, you know? And I'd be, I'd have like a rolling bin full of tees, just like stacking them, stacking them, stacking them, counting them by 10, bundling them in boxes. How old were you? That point, probably like... 13 I think okay so just around that age when you kind of like start getting your first job or something Mm -hmm. I used to go there before like he'd take us there as younger kids too and we'd just literally run around and me and Jesse would you know there's something called a Gaylord box and it's an actual term it's called the Gaylord box it's like the fucking huge boxes you know what I'm talking about yeah yeah a Gaylord Yeah. yeah yeah a lot of people like don't know what these are anyway they're like four foot high boxes and you know you fill these things with clothes or whatever whatever your business is. We used to jump off the um, pallet racking like into jeans and stuff, just like fucking around in the warehouse, like like it's a barn or something, you know? Uh, yes, yes. Did you ever build a skate ramp and fucking and fucking just ramp up and fucking get in there like that or no? Or just would no, jump in it? Dude, the wheels are turning. What the hell? How come I've never done this? This is a sick idea. <laughs> okay okay so skate ramp launch ramp into gaylord of sweatshirts is coming up that's like some jackass shit for um, sure on that note what's so funny i'm in my warehouse right now this is the warehouse where we started f is in frank vintage.com like years ago we've been in this warehouse for probably 12 years now mm-hmm. when we moved in i was such a fan of deer deck fantasy factory remember mm-hmm. that show 
Yes, yes. Big, uh, Rob, Robin Big. Robin Big. And then the next show was the the uh, Fear Facts. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that show was dope. I mean, I think Rob's a G because he's like good businessman. He's just that show was cool. It's like you just admire that guy's life. But, um, I wanted to make this warehouse like the Fantasy Factory. So we ended up buying. We built a ramp in the warehouse, which is now gone. Which was it lasted for like seven years. Okay. But we also had like, we had, there's like uh, this upper level that opens up to the downstairs so you can look over down. And we were like, we got to put a fire pole in here. We got to like, we used to have space where we could like set up boxes and skate in here. And, you know, those were the good old days when it wasn't so serious and we actually fucked around more. But yeah. Well, let me, let me, let me ask you this and then we'll, we'll get out of like, you know, the high school stuff and into, you know, uh, what you did after high school and all that kind of jazz in high school yeah. in junior high, growing up. Period. What kind of music were you into, man? Um. So, for me, it was like grunge for sure. Um. And later, like later teens, was like more into hip hop. But like I can remember when nirvana teen spirit came out right i, I don't even I, what jeez i was like 12 90 was it 92 i don't remember exactly the year but i remember my buddy brought the tape to school and i don't know if you like how old are you man i'm 50 bro 50 okay five zero you probably remember these like 1970 the, the tape players from like schools that were just like a tape and then the speaker was right behind it it was like a flat yep. thing yeah, so we, we and they had library cubicles where you could like go and have quiet time to read. Oh, oh hell yeah! Damn, <laughs> you hit me hard with that one. Hell yeah! So we sat in the library cubicle and um and like literally played this shit over and over and over and over and over. And that was the era where you'd like make mixtapes, so you'd like dub it off the radio. It might have even been that my buddy recorded it off the radio because it was before. I don't know if he had the album or act or not, because I think he just had that one song. But it was like, yeah, it was it was it was grunge. You know, I wasn't like a super Nirvana fan, but it was like um, Green Day. I played bass, so um, Alice in Chains, Jane's Addiction. Um, uh, who who else? Fuck, Smashing Pumpkins a little bit later, and then Did like you say Nirvana already. Nirvana. Yeah, yeah, I said Nirvana, but like I like that was just kind of what was like everyone was into i never got really into it um all and then like beastie boys and then like later jesse is a dj right he started playing um he bought turntables like uh, i guess maybe even as early as like 94 maybe okay. even before maybe like 93 because at, in 93 he was already 15 so he might have had turntables when he was like 15. and you're and his younger brother right no he's older Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're his younger brother. I just turned 40, so he's... I'm the younger brother. He's the older brother. So he got turntables, and then it was like... We started to go get into raving quite heavy. So then it was drum and bass. Through, again, through that period. No, so, no, no. We're not going to skip... We're not going to skip past that period. We're not going to skip... Tell me what you were into with the raving stuff. Like, were you guys booking parties, or... What were you guys doing with the raving stuff? 
And so did you do any raids? Did you do any raids at that at that big ass warehouse too? By the way, with all the jeans. No, no. And stuff. we never. Uh, we Another threw party, We threw some parties like locally at clubs and shit in like some towns around us, but it was always small. Our group, our group, like in that area, like we would have to travel to Toronto to go to the big the big raids, which is like an hour, mm -hmm. like I said, from where we grew up. And Toronto had a crazy scene in the 90s, early, like probably throughout the whole 90s, man. I got out of it later because I moved away, but um, it was probably the second strongest rave scene. Uh, there's going to be people that are going to be like, You're, no, my, our rave scene was stronger. But anyway, I, I will say it was the second strongest rave scene to London and the UK because that's where it kind of started, right? And we like a couple times a month or once a month there'd be a big party big rave and you'd, you'd get your buddies and you'd drive down and it was at a secret location and you'd have to park at this park and then there'd be a shuttle bus that would come and grab you and drive you out to like who knows where the fuck you're going because they couldn't like publicize the address or the cops would come you fucking party all night dance all night uh you know take a bunch of, of uh, fun pills and then fucking come back in the morning and and uh, go sit at McDonald's for three hours till you sober up before you drive home, I guess. <laughs> how, did, how did you guys get the word, like, out back then? Because now, of course, you know, you got websites and you got Instagram and this and that. But back then, you were trying to stay low-key from the cops, but you wanted to get the word out. Like, how did you do it? Did you make, like, little small flyers or... Well, yeah, they these big parties made huge, elaborate flyers that, like, people collect them because they were um, they had amazing art. They had all the DJs playing. All they would have is the date, though, and they never would release a location. And I think a lot of these promoters who may, had these parties wouldn't even know where they were going to do it until, like, the week before. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But they're like, fuck it, we're running it. And it was a really interesting time in in my life but i think like that toronto rave scene is a very interesting time period and like cultural phenomena that i was super happy to be a part of and it's it's anybody else who was there uh will will tell you the same because i don't think it happened like that in a lot of places and um it was a very cool scene man man that's what's up so after after high school you started, um, I guess you started skating professionally or snowboarding professionally, or I don't really know. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, it was it was snowboarding. I uh, I never really got that far with skating. I don't even think I ever thought about it that way with skating. Although I, you know, I had some really good years skating. Um, yeah. So actually, I want to say something. Okay, I was thinking uh, about this a lot lately. Um, this is kind of like a motivational thing, but anyway, I was going to say it because. I listened to this thing where it was like there was a story about this kid who was doing his SATs and like somehow, you know, he totally flunked the SATs. Right. But mm -hmm. they gave him like the wrong person's score and he like scored some crazy high number. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, this kid went on to be like super successful because he had this like boost of confidence from this SATs. And when in reality, he totally fucking wasn't that good and he fucked it up. But it was like that boost of confidence that got him. To, to believe in himself, right? I had a moment with snowboarding like that where I went to a contest in uh, like early, like the second year I was snowboarding. I wasn't that good. And these, I were, we were snowboarding on half pipes that were shit. They were like hand dug. You, like you literally could jump as high as you could actually jump because it wasn't, didn't even have any like launch ramp to it. Okay. 
And I ended up placing in this contest. I got third place. And I, you know, I won a snowboard. I won like some t-shirts and some gloves maybe. And that was so early on in my snowboarding that I think it just gave me this like sense of confidence. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then I just kept pushing, kept pushing and kept pushing. So I think that's important, you know, and I'm thinking about this mentality with my kids now. It's like, I, I need to like get them confident in life regardless because so much of it is just confidence and not skill i did pretty well with snowboarding so after high school I, I i competed throughout high school i trained a lot i was you know i pushed it i worked really hard i don't think i was like naturally gifted or anything like that like i never was too too epic but i had a really good time doing it and then after high school i moved out um actually i'll, I'll tell you a funny story quickly about <laughs> I lived in Vermont. I don't know if you knew that, but I lived in Vermont. So I lived in the mm -hmm. States for a while. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I got, I got busted growing dope in my house in 1998 in Vermont, okay. which at that time was not chill. Like that was very not chill. Like they, they were trying to put me in jail. Mm. And uh, it was the worst ghetto setup you've ever seen. Like I'm talking four plants in a closet, dude. You know what I mean? And they busted me for growing dope in my closet. And luckily, I was a U.S. citizen. So I got a deferred sentence. I had to pay a bunch of money for a lawyer. My dad was super pissed. <laughs> and uh, I got off with like some, re some like, uh, not rehab, but uh, counseling or something. And um, they tried to kick me out. They couldn't kick me out but of America because I'm a U.S. citizen. But if I wasn't, because of my dad, I would probably be banned from the States right now, which would have been the worst. For sure. But they, anyway, so after that, I moved out West to Whistler. And yeah, like I, I had a probably good two or three years as like a professional snowboarder, making a bit of money here and there and basically having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. So after you were done snowboarding, what did you do then? Did you, did you wander for a bit or did you go work with your dad or? What did you do then? Yeah, so I guess, you know, through my whole snowboard years, I was working restaurant jobs. Like, it never made me enough money to live. I, you know, I had to, like, those years I was washing dishes, I was serving uh, people in restaurants, I was cooking a little bit. Um, yeah, and at some point, you're like, okay, this ain't, this is like, I got to start making some real money. Mm -hmm. My first venture into actual business was not into vintage. I was, my dad like, was importing stuff at that time. He was importing like hammocks and mm -hmm. uh, from Brazil. He had this like side mm -hmm. hustle thing. He kind of went through like some different phases. And at this phase, he was importing hammocks from Brazil. We'll have to get into that on a podcast at some point. And uh, I helped him out and I was doing it out West for a while. And I would just go to festivals, right? I would go to like, I don't know, like random music festival or folk festival or whatever was going on and like sell these, sell these hammocks. So it kind of got me interested in the business. And then he was kind of still in the vintage thing. And my brother started working for him and was picking at a, at a factory. Right. Mm -hmm. And he, we were like, he, my dad moved from Canada back to Vermont. He had a store in Vermont and Jesse was picking in Canada, sending my dad all the product to his store in Vermont. Now, at some point, 
we started to get educated. Well, Jesse basically started to get educated on what was worth money and what, 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 why certain things were valuable and who collected what and what different markets wanted certain products and like all these different things. Right. And this was also the early days of eBay when fuck, you could sell anything on eBay, dude, you could put like an, a random eighties fucking like Reese's pieces shirt on eBay and it would like pop off for 50 bucks, you know, because there, it was so less saturated. There was nobody doing it. It was not a really big market at the time. Did, um, when you would get your payment from eBay, would it be in that same envelope with money <laughs> with the paper on top of it? Would it be cash? <laughs> that would have been sweet. If, if eBay would pay cash. <laughs> Uh, I don't even like. Yeah, that that was the early days of PayPal. I guess I guess PayPal was the was the catalyst that fucking blew open the internet for being able to make money. For sure, shout out to PayPal. Yeah, Love PayPal. Shout out to PayPal, but also fuck PayPal for taking so much fees. But shout out PayPal. <laughs> yeah, shout out PayPal. I mean, they started it. I mean, you know, you know, as anything gets bigger, you know what I mean. More things come into play. You know what I mean. You know, um, Wall Street Journal, $6,000 t-shirt. You know, things, you know, things uh, things come into play. Funny, I saw Feynman post and some other news uh, agency, like, picked up the story. And it was on another website. But I think it was on a gaming website. Mm -hmm. So people are taking that news story from the Wall Street Journal now and, like, putting it on other sites. And you're like, ah, oh, fuck, now it's going to go, like, super crazy. Right. So, go ahead, sorry. So yeah, back, just to finish that story is that like Jesse got into it and then he was like, D Drew, you should try to go like pick Brad because he was in Toronto and I'm out west in Vancouver, totally different cities, right? And he was like, you I was still living in Whistler, which is like an hour from Vancouver, ski town. He was basically saying, listen, if you want to get into this, go, go find yourself some, some factories in Vancouver, go picking, try to figure this shit out and get, get amongst it, right? So I was like, fuck it, let's do this found a factory, drove down, you know, I had like, I, I knew what was up because of my history with my dad and being in those, being around clothing growing up. But like, I didn't really know a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I didn't have that much knowledge in those early days. I really had to learn. And Jesse gave me a lot of crash courses in it. And then basically it was like learning as we both went, you know? And, and what was it back then? Like, I mean, you know, t-shirts is it now. What was it back then? Uh, I mean, t-shirts, we always picked, okay? We always picked t-shirts, but I'll tell you this. T-shirts was not my first choice or not my first area I would pick in any picking situation. My go-to was always jackets because I, in those early days, I found it was easier to find value in the jacket section, you know, mm -hmm. because you could go, it was a lot of what we buy for true vintage now still is what we were going for back then. But also commodities like, you know, we would take every cowboy shirt we could find. We would take every, like, disco shirt we could find because we had customers for that shit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you'd take, like, all the, all the Levi's. You'd be looking for Big E stuff. You'd be looking for military goods. You'd be looking for cool leather jackets that, like, aren't really that hot anymore. Mm -hmm. um, what else? Kind of a lot of the same true vintage stuff. It just wasn't, like no one area was that hot you know it was mm -hmm. kind of like you're 
you're buying like your Japan grade, which is like the true vintage stuff. You're buying your grades of wholesale stuff that we would like, I would drive around to stores in Vancouver and just like open my door to my van and be like, come pick what you want. Cash me out, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, we did, we always sold, like, even though in those early days we were selling t-shirts on eBay, like a lot. And Mm -hmm. it was like raglan, um, raglan rock shirts. Like you just got, you scored some Mm -hmm. of those today. Yeah, yeah. Always the look, you know? Um, advertising stuff. Um, what else? You know, 80s pop culture. If you found 80s movie tees, you'd grab them. Like, all that stuff was good. I guess, like, what, what would be, like, the big hitters from back then? I mean, leather was popping, man. There was a lot of leather that was worth a lot of money back then. Mm-hmm. I feel like the, the, the Raglan, like like a, a good Raglan, like made in or something, you know, like that would be like a, a big hitter in those early days. Right, right. Okay, so um, when you when you started, when your brother told you to, you know, go check out some of the warehouses and you started, were you doing just eBay or were you selling at flea markets or like what was the what was the jam back then? Were, was there any were you doing any Rose Bowl? Was Rose Bowl even popping back then? Rose Bowl's popping, but to us at in those early days, it was kind of just like a legend, legendary event that we had never been to yet. You know, we learned about it because so many of the people we were selling goods to were then going to the Rose Bowl to sell them on. So oh, wow. we weren't realizing end dollar values on a lot of the stuff we were moving at that point because we didn't have the knowledge and the knowledge wasn't available. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you had to actually put your fucking head to the grindstone, your nose to the grindstone. You had to beat dirt. You had to actually be in it to learn anything in those early days because you couldn't, nobody was just willing. I mean, you could get a, maybe a, a mentor or something and they would teach you the ways, but like it wasn't available. You couldn't just Google half this stuff. You know, you couldn't figure it out. So much of this knowledge was only even known by Japan. Mm-hmm. Right. So we were selling on eBay. I was selling to local stores and then, we started to do events too, but it wasn't flea markets. There's not really any popping flea markets here, man. Nothing like there is now. And if there was, you'd show up with a bunch of vintage and then all, all these people there would be like, you know, you know how you get, you get those like tire kickers, like this is $30, you know? Oh, Mm -hmm. what do you want to pay? I want to pay $5. You know, you go to here, it's out in the country and they're like expecting to pay $2. So like that wasn't the market. What I did do though is, and Jesse did this too. We actually, started reworking pretty early on like 2001 mm-hmm. and we were making like a handful of styles like maybe 10 different styles of products out of t-shirts all t-shirts were well, you guys sold them yourself or well we weren't what we did is uh we would find like people who wanted to work from home and we would contract them so it'd be like we're paying you like five bucks a piece for this style here's like a mm-hmm. huge stack of tees like I'll pick up whatever you can make like next weekend or whatever, you know? Okay. And we were giving like opportunity to people that wanted like that freedom to work from home and we would kind of like help design. And and then later on, Jesse had a small warehouse in Toronto where he actually had some machines and had a couple in-house girls who would design and then we would contract it out when we had to. And we were just like making it like, there was no forward thinking, man. It was like, we got, we got to like, we got an event coming up like, 
try to make a hundred pieces and let's go do it, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, Jesse started going to universities. It was fucking genius back then. Cause a lot of these universities, like opening week of uh, school in September, they'll have like an event where like you can set up a booth, right? Mm-hmm. Or then at Thanksgiving, they'll have an event or Christmas will have an event. And you can literally set up a fucking booth in their like main buildings. And we used mm-hmm. to just sell vintage at the university because that's mm-hmm. who got it at that point. But it wasn't hype stuff. And we, you know, we were bringing in regular product, like affordable vintage product. It wasn't a Japan grade. It wasn't like hundred dollar t-shirts. It was like 20 bucks for this, 10 bucks for those, 30 bucks for those, like, you know, wearable, affordable college shit. Right, right. But that was a jam and it, it, it worked really well. So when did when did business really start blowing up for you or for you and your brother? Was there a certain uh, there's, there's been point? waves, man. There's been there's been many waves. I've been in too long to have it be like there's one moment really. But I'll tell you a few of like the Cause I was thinking like the snapbacks, because you know Yeah, totally. That was one of the first big booms was the snapbacks, right? Mm-hmm. Jesse was again instrumental in, in starting that up. This was probably, well, we opened the, the website. So FSNFrankVintage.com launched in 2009, okay? And up until that point, we were selling on eBay. And, and it was, it was I, I was thinking about this the other day. I'm like, fuck. We were kind of like scared to open a website back then. But now it's so easy. Now you can just grab a Shopify or grab a Squarespace or whatever. And you can be open in like 24 hours. But back then, like, you literally had to pay a developer because, like, no one had the knowledge and it wasn't that simple. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was. We were just dumb. I don't know. But it, was, it felt like a bigger deal than it, than it is now, you know? Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. And I remember sitting in a bar. Actually, the reason I was thinking about this is because I drove by the bar. We launched the website. We had it time to go live. We paid these two girls to make the site. They did a great job. I'm pretty sure that first site we did was uh, WordPress. And... I remember sitting in the bar having beers with all my homies and Jesse. And then that first sale came in, that first snapback sale came in. And I was like, yo, people are buying. Like, this is, this is going to (laughs) happen. I was like, so stoked. Cause you know, I preach this too. Like, you know, you don't have control. If you're selling on Instagram, if you're selling on um, Depop, Etsy, eBay, like literally those platforms kind of have all the control, right? Yes, you can make a lot of money, but they have the control. But once you open your own setup, it's like you take back that control. And if you can make it successful, I think there's a lot of value in that, you know? Yep. I'm not even, by the way, I'm not even bothered by your text messages that I get. Hey, here's a new drop. You know what I mean? I'm like, all right, I fuck with them. I'm cool with it. You know what I mean? <laughs> but that's a but that's a form of control. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I can get at people when I want to, right? And Yep. You know, if you don't want, if you don't want to get them, you can sign, you can, you can unsign up and that's fine. I try not to abuse it, but yeah, like you have that control. So the snapback game was super instrumental. And then from, from once we opened that website, man, we were like, you know, we were all over the internet. There was a few things we did in those early days that made it go crazy viral. Like, um, uh, okay. One thing we did was I heard a trick a long time ago. So like my, my role in this business, you know, obviously picking is like the, the true love. I don't get to do it as much anymore, but 
it's been in marketing. Like I really have a passion for marketing. I think it's interesting. I think the psychology of people is very interesting and like why people do certain things and all these different, all these different aspects of the business. Right. But I'm right there with you, brother. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's, it has to become more than just the clothes at some point. And like, I, I, I'm like ADD and I think a lot of successful people are ADD and you, cause you're like doing this, doing that, interested in that. That's me. I, I get interested in a lot of different things. But I try to keep it focused in this one realm. You know, it's like I'm in vintage. I'm in this business. F is in Frank, Frankie Collective. I can do all these things within it, but I'm still going to keep in this game, you know? Right. Um, but anyway, so a couple of tricks that we did early on, we we started naming the photos. So, like, websites will you'll post a shitload. Of, like, all these T-shirts are on the website now, right? All these jackets mm -hmm. and stuff. And you can... If you actually name, take the time to name the photos, what they are, mm -hmm. now your images pop up on Google Images. So when all these kids started to like search Google for snapbacks, they would get flooded with our fucking uh, watermarked images of snapbacks. You know what I mean? And then mm -hmm. boom, they click on that, it goes to our site. That was like a huge thing in getting us like all the, the, the hits that well, we needed. Um, to, so, the, so the SEO image thing put you over the top, yeah. Gotcha. That was one of them. I mean, there was other things like, uh, fuck, I don't even remember, man. There was so many S it was back then. It was all about SEO. You had to get it. You had to do your search engine optimization yeah. bullshit to yeah. get, to get people to hit you. And then, you remember, you know, then there's other things, the like trying to get celebrities through the door and like have them post and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. you remember waiting each month for the Google dance? Do you remember that? Were you doing it that early? Do you know what the Google Dance is? Oh, what's the Google Dance? The Google Dance is every month, every month Google would 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 have new results, like fresh new results. Like the results would last for one month, and then you know people would make websites and changes and stuff, and and stuff would get crawled all through the month, and then at the end of the month or whenever, boom, they let out the results, the new results for that month, and we called it the Google Dance. Uh, yeah. Crazy. I'm, I'm an SEO from way, way back, bro, from like 2001, bro. But anyway, go on. Yeah, no, that's wild, well, dude. Um, yeah, I nerded out about that shit for a while because it was the way we had to like operate. You know, we had to get, we had to get hits. It's like you're just uh, a website is just floating out there in fucking internet space until you have people checking you, right? Right. So, so yeah. go ahead, sorry. No, no, you go. So when did you guys start going to Rose Bowl, man? And ver your very first Rose Bowl ever, what did you think? Not what did you think business-wise on what you did, but yeah. how, how was it for you emotionally? So the first Rose Bowl, I, we never sold that, of course, right? I, I went down a few times before we sold. Mm -hmm. And the first time, one thing I will say about me as a human and me as my motivations is like I'm motivated by – different things. I'm, you know, I want freedom. I want my time to snowboard and surf and skate and be with my family. So a big motivation for us to start going down to Cali was so I could surf. So I think I went down to visit friends because I had a bunch of friends down there living in San Diego, around LA. And it was kind of just like a research trip. Like I'm going down, I'm just going to hang out. I'm going to go surf going to go check out the Rose Bowl for the first time. And I remember being super, super overwhelmed. 
and not in like a like uh i'm gonna have like i'm like i'm i'm socially anxious or something but in like a there's too much good stuff here like everything here if i saw it outside of here i would buy but i'm like i can't buy it all because like i don't <laughs> i don't have that money and it's fucking ridiculous so i remember buying like a lot of things that i was like that was dumb that was a dumb purchase my first rose bowl i bought a lot of things that i were I didn't really care. I didn't like blow a ton of money. I probably spent a thousand bucks or something. But it was a lot of things I couldn't resell because I got too overly hyped in the moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was like, yeah. it, it yeah. threw me off. Yeah. And it was, it was, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the biggest takeaway for me was like, there's so much here. This business is bigger than like, I had thought at that time and there's more going on and also yeah I mean it was it was it was definitely overwhelming man it gave you a realistic view of what the actual vintage market looks like <laughs> yeah. you know not what it looks like in your city or your town what the fuck it really looks like in the oh. world that was like a, a, a gigantic fishbowl yeah and it it opened my eyes to like certain other products that I might not have known that were like going for good money also opened my eyes to like, not everything is worth what you, what you think it is. Like there's variables. Like it's like the same mentality. Everyone thinks they're fucking Aladdin shirts are worth big money. Now it's like, ah, they're not because you know, there's, there's factors to every piece, you know, it's like right. you could have the same biggie Levi's in like a small size with damage and like super weird fade, or you could have like a dead stock pair in a perfect size. And it's like, just because you saw that dead stock pair sell for this much doesn't mean your shitty pair is the same value, you know? Right. There's that side of it too that kind of opened my eyes because I, I think I bought things that first Rose Bowl where I was like, but I, but this is wicked because of this. And then it's like, ah, I fucked up. It was a bad size or it was whatever. I don't know. Right. It was really cool. It was, it was, a, it was a, and also, you know, it's inspiring. I'll say this for anybody just about getting outside of your fucking city, your bubble, whatever you're doing. It's like, it, Oh, it's like, you know, they say like you use your right brain 90% of the time. You got to like trigger your left brain and traveling and seeing the way other people do things in the world is like the same mentality of like triggering your other side of your brain. And it inspires you to maybe a new idea, a new way to do things, something else, you know, and that's, that's traveling for business that's traveling for pleasure that's just like getting outside of your bubble and seeing new shit right but just a side note my first rose bowl was this february when it rained and i came up and met you and shook your hand yeah. that was my first rose bowl and i felt the same way you felt i felt totally overwhelmed bro i was i felt so overwhelmed and i saw so much vintage i'm like Maybe I should sell something else. There's just there's so much shit here. Like, wh why even try? Like, there's just there's just miles of vintage, bro. Here, there must be tons of vintage out there. Why even try? I got over it, but I was fucking super overwhelmed. Yeah, dude, it's like that, man. And and I I tell people that because we have a lot of people that come with us that it's their first time or like people will ask me like, what, what should I expect on my first day at the Rose Bowl? I'm like, you know, you gotta like, you gotta take it in, just, just suck it all up and like take it in. 
don't don't like have any expectations or think you're gonna like score some crazy come up or like you know it, it takes time to get the lay of the land to learn like what sellers you might get deals from what sellers to avoid um you know where to look you know how to dig at, a, at the rose bowl and like there's all these different nuances to it you know it's it's like the what's a tip what's a tip on how to dig at the rose bowl i mean for, for me okay well a lot of people will say like go to the piles right go to the piles and dig through some piles because you can get a seller that shows up and dumps a pile and you can come up you know like you can really come up but then there's people that try to fake or break that where they're like they just throw all their heat on the ground and you pull something out they're like that's 300 that's 100 that's you know and you're like okay what's the point of having a pile so there's there's that but also, i never even knew that that's that's a gem right there i never even fucking knew that go ahead oh what dig the piles <laughs> no 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 i never knew that people would put like 100 200 shirts you know down there type shit and you know know that people are going to go for that first and then you know once you pull it up they're taxing that's fucking brilliant actually i never knew that that, that existed but go ahead drop some more gems i'm sorry yeah so uh you know this is not for first-time sellers but you you know you gotta get the, the lay of the land you know you gotta start you gotta start to develop relationships with who's who and who you know is willing to to wheel and deal and who won't wheel and deal right there's people at the rose bowl there that, that won't fucking wiggle on any, any prices and a lot of them have had the same shirts up on their on their booth for like six months. What's the point? You know, what's the point of digging at those places? You got, you know, you got to learn who has good turnover, who's going to be coming up with new stock, who's willing to make like deals if you're going to buy a lot. Um, what other tips I got? Fuck. Move fast in the morning. Get up early, man. Get up early because those early risers kill it. Like, I don't know if you listen to the podcast with the Earthlings, but they, I've met them because they were 4 a.m.ers at the Rose Bowl for like mm -hmm. two years, solid. Mm -hmm. And they're just showing up. They're helping us unload the boxes, right? So, sure, I know I'm, I, I'm fair with my prices, and they know that I'm fair. I also know what's up. So, like, there'll be times when they pull something out of a box, and I tell them price, and they're like, no, they don't want it. But at least they mm -hmm. saw it first. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Be first before anybody else did because they bought a lot, man. Every every month it was like a good pile of teas they were buying from us. Mm -hmm. Same with Feynman. Feynman's there, fucking crack of dawn, you know, along with like a ton of Japanese just going for it. And, uh, you know, another tip that's like Rose Bowl tip, but also kind of like outside Rose Bowl is that you can, if you come enough and you develop relationships with dealers, you can set up appointments before the Rose Bowl, which if you're, if you got cash and you're ready to spend cash and you're, you pay fair, you know, nobody wants to have an appointment with someone who's like trying to like grind you to the bone on a price. But right. if you pay fair and you got cash, then you can get those appointments and then you get to see it before anybody in a calm environment, like say at our hotel or at somebody else's house or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When did you, uh, we got about, four more minutes left when did you when did you actually start selling at the rose bowl and how and how did that go because you know you're coming from canada the rose bowl you know is in california yeah so first rose so I, I think i went twice before i sold the first time was solo second time was with jesse 
and that second time was super fun because me and Jesse just got the rip around. We bought like a bunch of, excuse me, a bunch of like dope Nike, old like 90s, 80s Nikes. And like, we were just buying shit that we liked at that one. And then I went with my dad. My dad actually helped me sell at the first one. Okay. He, we came down, we saved, me and Jesse saved up like all the best shit that we were finding for probably, I don't know, three, four months or something like that. Had like a whole booth worth of like proper heat. Came down, tagged it all, got it all priced. Didn't probably know a lot of the proper pricing at that point. Showed up, set up the booth. We got fucking swarmed because we were like the new heads on the block. You know what I mean? Right. Some, of these, right. some of these dudes knew us, but like literally like the word traveled and like all the dealers were like fucking swarming our booth, man. And that right I was like, holy shit, this is crazy. Like making big sales, you know, like first thing in the morning. And I guarantee I undersold a lot of product at that first Rose Bowl. But to me, it didn't matter. I was making good money, you know. I was selling mm -hmm. shit for like what I thought was great, great, great money. And mm -hmm. people were stoked, you know. I was selling to dealers. I was selling to Japanese. Met a lot of my connections at that first Rose Bowl that I still have to this day. And mm -hmm. there was no turning back. Like after that, after that first Rose Bowl, I was like, "This is the shit." We get to come to sunny California in the dead of winter, sell vintage at the Rose Bowl, you know hang out with cool people it was like it was sick dude it was fucking good times and how often did you do in our last couple of minutes how often did you start doing it after that after that first time how often like so for the two first times while, a year? yeah for the first oh no dude we were solid we were for that first like the first eight years of rose bowl it was like uh like at least seven to eight times Seven eight times a month. I mean, a, a year. Wow. Yeah, there was there's certain months that were like the shittier months. Like everybody missed January because of because of like it's like just after Christmas and like whatever January shit month. And then I think like the fall was good. And then like August was 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 a miss because it's like the hottest month of the year and a lot of people don't come in August. There's certain months that were like the misses, you know. And then other than those, we tried to be there all the time. Mm. Man. That's amazing, man. I mean, I got so much more to ask you, but we only got a minute and a half left. Um, any tips for the young guys out there that are just getting into it or been into it for a little while, but now their bins are starting to dry up because of competition and their racks are starting to dry up? Any tips? Yeah, well, I think, I think a lot of people are going to fall off this business, man. This business has got saturated really fast, and I think a lot of – I think – the true people who love it will stay and the rest are going to fucking part ways, you know? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't get phased. You know, if you're, if you really love it, st stick it out, you know? And I think, you know, if your bins are drying up and you really love this business, consider moving, you know, consider moving your ass to somewhere where the business is good. It's like, you know, I get it. I've always been more personal based situational. So I'm like, I'm going to live in Whist in, in Squamish because I like snowboarding and all these amenities. So I'm not going to move to say like Wisconsin because the rag's good. But, like, if you want to, like, get yourself set in this business, consider moving. Don't stay in L.A. Like, go somewhere where there's 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 constant, um, like, access to good rag. Right. I got 20 seconds left, man. It was it was so awesome to have you, bro. I'm sorry my lighting is bad. I'm out here on the road, man. But, hey, you know how it goes. No, nah, it's all good, brother. Thank you for having me. You've always been, like, uh, a true G. 
very supportive. I appreciate you big time. I appreciate you, man. Until next time. All right, man.